0: Eric, welcome to The Bitcoin Source. Can we start things off by you introducing yourself to the audience?
1: Absolutely, thanks for having me on. Um, yes, yeah, so my name is Eric Yakes. I'm the author of The Seventh Property. I have a background in finance. So before I got into Bitcoin, I was working in private equity. And um, you know I, I would deal with investments in companies that were declining. So we would look at companies that were either kind of going into distress, um, kind of on the verge of bankruptcy and we'd look to buy them and turn them around for different things. And that was kind of how I started my career in the financial world. And uh, you know, it gives you a lot of exposure to all the problems in the economy that exist. And um and over time, you know, once I discovered Bitcoin, I kind of realized that this is a solution to the central banking issues that cause a lot of these problems. And, uh, and that caused me to just jump into the industry. And when I started researching and getting deep into the industry, that drove me to write a book that I thought would, you know, work well with a broad audience as well as kind of like make the, uh, the value proposition for Bitcoin very clear for like financial and economic type people. Um, and you know i just wanted to put something out there that was pretty holistic and covered a lot of different areas of bitcoin that i think are important to understand if you're really serious about getting into it and uh yeah other than that i'm working on setting up a fund right now um for the vc side of the industry and supporting bitcoin companies and you know if anybody wants to reach out to me about anything you know please do i'm on twitter it's the best way to uh to look me up and it's just my name is my handle
0: thank you eric that was a great introduction and you know, you talk about your book. You talk about the seventh property, and what I've always been curious to know about: where did you source your Bitcoin knowledge from? Whether it was people, books, or even courses in the space in the Bitcoin ecosystem that helped you or orange-pilled you. So, could you kind of break that down to the audience, like what some of those things were?
1: Yeah, a lot. You know, a lot of it was books, and there were uh, definitely a lot of like various papers that I read. I mean, a, a lot of the research in the book that went into like the non-Bitcoin uh, side of it. So like the first half of the book, I'm just covering, you know, monetary history and how the Fed works as well as other banking systems. And, um, you know, a lot of that, I, I wanted it to, uh, you know, I sourced that from a variety of different papers and uh, I, I tried to get actually a lot of that from the Fed Um, because I wanted to, I didn't want to just come from, uh, you know, one source of information that kind of confirms my beliefs and everything. And I wanted to provide evidence and truth from other areas. And, um But that was easier because the story of central banking just kind of tells itself in terms of like Bitcoin, a lot of the resources that I was looking at, you know, I think the Nakamoto Institute is a really good place for like various blog posts that are really important to the community. Um, Nick Szabo's writing, I think is very important. And uh, there, there was a good amount of books. I mean, mostly in terms of books, I just read technical books. And like really, when I was first getting into the research, the only big book that I was aware of, because I was relatively new to the industry, uh, the only Big book that I was aware of was like the Bitcoin Standard, and uh, in terms of the more like technical books that helped me kind of get my head around how Bitcoin actually operated, it was uh, you know Mastering Bitcoin, and you know coming from the financial world, I didn't have any sort of developer background, so I you know had to first learn a little bit about how to like code Python, and then I did Jimmy Song's Programming Bitcoin book, and I mean in terms of you know to my knowledge out of the more technical areas you can get into and learn about Bitcoin. I think that book's definitely the best place to do it. It's pretty time consuming and it's a lot of work, um, but it it really helped me get my head around the technical aspects of Bitcoin. Other than that, there was one other textbook that was pretty old. I think it was published around 2015. It was a group of different university professors. It was actually pretty good. and that was called Bitcoin and Cryptocurrency Technologies that gave like a really good history of the industry and kind of talks about it from a, a different angle than I think a lot of the Bitcoin literature does. Um, that's a that's a full blown textbook. And I, I read that and that was really helpful, too. Um, I'd say that those those are kind of the primary areas that I was digging into.
0: Yeah, most definitely. And I think that, you know, we can clearly tell if anyone's read your book, they can clearly tell that you've done your hundred hours of Bitcoin research because there's a lot of books out there, the Bitcoin Standard, some other books in the space that are really ubiquitous and people really love. And what I really like about your book, Eric, is that you break down the properties and the protocol of the asset in each chapter, and you kind of give like a really good um, disclaimer and example of why these things in Bitcoin are super important. And that kind of leads into my next question, which is, what we're seeing in the market right now, what we're seeing in the ecosystem right now, where there's a lot of FUD and there's a lot of issues where you're dealing with like FTX. My question to you, Eric, is: you know, after seeing the bankruptcy of FTX and people losing, you know, their money in these crypto Ponzi schemes, do you feel like Bitcoin will decouple in the next cycle coming up?
1: Yeah, I, I, I don't try to be too. Uh, um, I don't try to get too crazy about these narratives. I don't, I don't want to mislead anybody. But you know, my speculation is yeah, I think that um I think that with this past cycle we really reached a very broad audience of people at this point. And a lot of people understood crypto um and got exposed to it. And a lot of people are starting to witness a lot of the problems with it. I think in the twenty seventeen cycle it was not nearly at the scale and significance that it was in this past cycle. Um And that's a big deal i think another big piece too is probably going to come from the regulatory backlash which i'm not excited about i think that there's going to be good things to come from it we want to get rid of all the scams in the industry i also think it could start cause problems for bitcoin companies um, and if you want to be like a software provider to Bitcoin, and um, if you know in the future some of the regulators try to classify you as like a money transmitter, you know some sort of financial services regulation, that that's not good. And I'm not a fan of government intervention either, but I do think that there will be some benefits that come from it. Um, and and I think that those two things are going to make it really hard for the crypto ecosystem to return and have another major bull cycle. And, you know, I, cause, cause basically like what I boiled down all the complexity to is if people weren't able to it's one thing if these tokens were all being used as like an equity security and they were using that to circumvent, uh, having to actually go through a securities registration and all the, you know, paperwork and compliance that comes with that, that would have been one thing. And that still would have brought a lot of financing to the industry because what it does is it kind of changes the model of venture capital. When you think about like traditionally how venture capital would work, um, you have like a 10 year investment horizon. You're investing in a bunch of different companies. You you know, if you go raise a hundred million dollar fund, you're gonna go invest in like 30 different companies over the next like three to five years. And then it's not gonna be until another five years, so 10 years in total, that you end up selling out of a lot of those investments. And what this whole token model allowed VC funds to do was not actually be able to, or actually be able to sell out much earlier. And that's because the only way you could sell out before these token models was if you had, you know, Company with product market fit, you had buyers, you had somebody who'd actually be willing to buy that, um, and it couldn't it, it just be something that was completely worthless. So you, otherwise, you're just not going to find a buyer. And this token model allowed VCs to just pump up prices and dump it on retail investors. And so that that's kind of like one piece of it. The other compelling piece to people um, who are taking advantage through this model was the ability to earn senior age. And that was more like the founders and they're like, well, if we have this token um, and and senior age is like, uh, that's the money, that's the difference between the amount of value you can gain from creating money and its cost. And it's a costless form of monetary creation when you create these worthless tokens. So it's very tempting for, you know, founders want to try to associate a token with something because if it really works at all, then it's worth doing for the most part and uh it's it's similar to like spam it's just like because it costs nothing you might as well do it and um and and i think that a lot of people kind of had that mentality so like those two things um they made it really compelling to want to pump token prices and all the leverage all the contagion all these things that emerged were like predicated upon the asset values of these tokens being pumped if it, it you know if like the world wisens up and regulators step in then those two big pillars of it all go away. And, um, and we'll, we'll see how that plays out, but nonetheless, I think it, one, one, it's going to be really hard for the crypto side of the industry to really witness another major bull market. And, you know, I'm, I'm not saying that it's not certain, you know, there's a lot of money that still exists. There's lobbyists, like there's a lot of things that could happen that could prevent that from ultimately occurring. Um, and, uh, and, you know people uh, you know i was on a panel recently with alex leishman at river financial and he made a great point he was like you know people have short memories i think if we get into another cycle like people are very poor at assessing risk and uh and you know people forget about this in a few years and that that's the other side of it it's like that could occur Um, but I think the case for ultimately that value flowing into uh, the legitimate side of the industry, that's really trying to build things. And, and that's not me saying that I'm writing off every technology in crypto. So there are some legitimate aspects that have come from it. I just think that those things all need to be built on the firmest ground, which is, you know, Bitcoin is the foundational layer and, uh, and a ton of its crap, but, um, But nonetheless, I think that it tees it up well for growth in the Bitcoin side of the industry, people to realize like, oh, this is the legitimate aspect that, you know, without this nothing, we can't really build a new global monetary system unless it is on top of Bitcoin. And and I think that there's a much more compelling case or the case is the same, but it's much more compelling to the average individual now to see why that matters so much. And uh, I'm optimistic for it.
0: Most definitely. I agree with that 100%. And I really do think that, you know, Bitcoin has this kind of firm around it, where um, you have that decentralization aspect. And I agree with you, Eric, where I think that in order for the alternative coins, probably outside of like Ethereum, even though Ethereum has its own issues. I think in my opinion, that the only way that it's going to see another big propping up of the price and having people kind of have a, a better understanding and feel more confident in it again, is when the regulators come in with clarity and clear cut rules of what this actual digital coin is doing and also CBDCs, right? I think that when they come in, they're going to come in as like the hero to say like, okay, you've been scammed. You've lost millions of dollars. And the only way that this is going to work now is it's going to have to be regulated through a government centralized entity where we can keep an eye on it. We can keep you know, nefarious players in check. And I think that that's going to be the crossroads for the Bitcoiner and the cryptocurrency uh, investor where they have to make a decision on do you want to go left or do you want to go right? And I agree with you, everything you said there, Eric, like that makes perfect sense. And I hope that, you know, it's a lesson learned for people that did lose money. And it, you know, makes stronger conviction for the people that were already subscribed to Bitcoin, uh, you know, since they started being orange pilled at whatever date that was.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I definitely agree. Um, and I, and I also think what's interesting about that when this was a little over a year ago, I was, I was speaking at this conference somebody in the crowd asked me a question like, what do you think long-term is like the biggest risk to Bitcoin success? Um, and you know, the, I, I, the answer I had was kind of like a bait and switch strategy where it gets brought under, you know, the proper regulatory veil and people ultimately opt into a lot of those technologies. Um, which is obviously a, uh, a contentious side of the industry. And I, I don't think that like everything needs to be self sovereign peer to peer. I think that there's a role for institutions, certainly in the near term and possibly in the long term, um, what's important is that we have a large enough peer to peer economy and it functions well enough so that people can always opt out. But I think in terms of like, you know, Ethereum, um that could be a bullish case for the asset price of the token the way you're describing with CBDCs. I mean, it could become like the regulated, you know, blockchain and, um, and used for like CBDC issuance in some form. And, um, and I, I see things starting to move that direction. And it seems like a lot of the community would be on board that because it'll, it'll probably pump their bags to some degree. Like that is a bullish scenario for the price of ether. And, um, and yeah, we'll see how it pans out, but I I see a lot of a lot of the chessboard moving that direction.
0: Yes, most definitely. And I kind of want to get more into your book now. Um, there was a particular chapter in your book because I used to be a former gold bug, big into the banking industry before I got orange pilled. And in chapter thirteen, you talk about the properties of Bitcoin. And there was something in there that you talked about that I want to ask you now that I have you here um, on the podcast, which was. You know, you talk about inflation rates and my question to you, Eric, is will the Bitcoin inflation rate drop below gold's inflation rate over time? Uh,
1: yeah, I mean, the, the thing about gold's inflation rate is that, you know, it's not certain like Bitcoin's is. Um, and we're measuring that by the change in like the actual monetary supply. But... Um, Yeah, I mean, with the next halving cycle at current uh, gold supply increases, then we would expect Bitcoin's supply to go below that. But, um, you know, the the gold supply fluctuates over time and it could change in various ways. But overall, it's kind of ranged between one and a half to two and a half percent throughout history but the next having will be below that at you know less than
0: 1%. Yeah. And I think that you know gold has been pretty stagnant over the last decade and even like today for example the S&P 500 rallied today but people don't realize that that's kind of a precursor to the Fed the Fed hike that they're going to have in a few days. So I think that anytime you have a rate hike or an impending rate hike you always see like wonky things go on in the market but when you look at gold gold didn't really rally today. Like it did all right, but it didn't do great. And it didn't do as good as in comparison to Bitcoin over the last decade. And that's kind of what was the light bulb aha moment for me, where, uh, you know, I realized that gold had some properties that were beneficial, but it also had a lot of negatives that could impact you, especially if you're holding it over the long term. And it just was like, it made perfect sense to me that Bitcoin would be the de facto better store value over gold. And then when I read your book and I read chapter 13 and you kind of broke it down into an almost science, I was like, okay, this this guy knows what he's talking about. Like, it's good stuff.
1: Yeah, and, and I think that like, you know, when I break that down, I, I wanted, you know, it's a good qualitative way to like communicate to people, you know, here, here's what we're looking at. Um, and all of this is predicated upon in the long term, the ultimate adoption of Bitcoin. That's the number one driver of all of it without Bitcoin becoming more widely accepted and utilized and various functions that it can be utilized. Um, you know, none of that will come true, but we can, we can look at the fundamental properties of everything else that it has and say, well, it's better at everything else right now. So making the bet that it will come true is probably the best bet that you could be making. And, uh, and we'll continue to, you know, demonetize a lot of assets like gold and replace their function. And also, you know, gold has become so constrained over the past, you know, century that it it really hasn't functioned well. I mean, there's no practical way to actually use gold as a medium of exchange in any form. And it's really not even its functionality that has enabled it to become, um, an alternative hedge, uh, within an economic crisis. It's, um, it's really just uh, you know, more of a narrative at this point. But um and you know, Bitcoin still is more of a narrative. And I, I think that some of these questions it comes down to your timeline. Like a lot of people in the industry like Bitcoin is savings, and it's like when I talk to people, I don't tell them like, you know, Bitcoin is savings. Like once you really understand it, um, then you know like for the long term it's good savings, or you can expect it to be, but we can't be certain of that yet. And um but You know, in the short term, we wouldn't get it to a point where it does become that in the short term, that's gonna take a lot more scale and liquidity of the of the monetary asset for it to ultimately get there
0: in the book, you do something that's profound that a lot of writers that talk about Bitcoin don't really talk about. They're just really trying to orange pill the audience when they write the book and you talk about the criticism of Bitcoin. And you have, when we're talking about gold, for example, the Peter shifts of the world where it doesn't matter what kind of Bitcoin content you send them, books, podcasts, episodes, there's like no changing their narrative of why gold is a better store of value than Bitcoin is. And why do you believe the mainstream media, you know, the economists that are out there, um, you know, dismiss Bitcoin as a transformational technology? Uh,
1: you know, I think like the, I think there's you know, a million reasons. Um, I think that a lot of it stems from, you know, it's uh, a lot of it stems from the same reason why Kodak didn't want to make digital cameras. And it's because they didn't want to eat their own young. And, um, and a lot of, I think, leaders in the traditional world, they also have a similar view on our banking system and how that works. And then the majority, but the majority of the way the narrative spread is just through control over the media and ignorance of the general population. And it allows these narratives to spread pretty widely because of that. Um, Most people just don't understand it yet. And that's why education is such a huge piece.
0: And I just hope that, you know, people can go out there and really study these things. As the Bitcoiners always say, you know, don't trust, verify. So when you see episodes like this, you see Eric on these podcasts talking about these things, you know, just don't take our word for it. Actually go out and do your own research and have your own experience with the asset to see why it's truly number one in our books. And, uh, you know, that would be great for the audience to know that. So, uh, Eric, this is my last question for you. And it kind of is a synopsis of your book and like the whole concept that you're trying to push with the book. And you talk about, you know, the properties of Bitcoin, you know, or the properties of money, better yet, which is like scarcity, durability, acceptability, portability, the whole gamut. And I kind of wanted to know, like, why did you name bitcoin or label bitcoin as the seventh property and why is immutability uh, important in that front
1: yeah I, so it's it's kind of challenging so like those properties i list are like the most commonly accepted properties and you know it, it, it isn't some sort of necessarily scientific thing there's other lenses from which people tend to view it but that's kind of the general consensus and um when i was digging into bitcoin and i was trying to assess it from a framework of how we look at money and what makes money valuable um, I think that, you know, once I realized what Bitcoin was, uh, the first question that popped in my mind was like, okay, well, how does that fit within this framework that we look at money from? And it, it, there's a lot of properties of it that just didn't really fit neatly into that. And that's what got me thinking. And I was like, okay, well, what really makes Bitcoin valuable is that it has, you know, decentralized production, storage, and verification. And and there's a lot of different ways that people will look, like, look at that. Um, I think that there's some other charts that have like side-by-side comparisons of like Bitcoin, gold, and fiat. And they kind of break out, break that out into a lot of different components. And what I wanted to do was boil it all down to like, what's the fundamental property? And really what it is, is that we have an immutable monetary asset. We have something that doesn't change easily. and um, And there's different to, to be clear, there's different definitions of immutability. If you're talking to a developer, then that means like perfectly does not change. And Like Bitcoin can change in like minor ways, but like, generally speaking, it's an incredibly hard thing to change, um, which is, which is a definition of immutability, but nonetheless, um, it's, uh, that's what I boiled it down to. And it was funny because it took me a while to actually figure come come to that word. Um, and for a while, like in the book, I had that same chart and it just said like decentralization of production, storage and verification of money. And, um, and the way that I viewed it was like, okay, well, if we know we've now created a true innovation and... Um, And that innovation is something that we don't have to have trade-offs for anymore, because if we look at, you know, Bitcoin's most comparable from the uh, physical world being gold, and we say, why was it that we had to even have paper money emerge in the first place? It's because paper money was superior to gold in a lot of ways across some of the properties. the, The distinction was that, you know, it was much more portable. It was more divisible. It was easier to make fungible. And the... You know the the big distinction was that paper wasn't scarce. So we had to tie it to something that was scarce like gold. And that's why the combination of a gold standard or fully backed gold reserves and then trading paper receipts was the innovation for money at that point in time. And what we did with Bitcoin is we found a way to actually not only make it better than paper digital money in our current system for transacting, but we also made it even better than gold for its scarcity. So we combined all those things into one technology with no trade-off. And like, that's a true innovation. Um so if we're assessing money to the future, whether it's some, you know, 20, 30 years from now some new type of monetary asset that emerges, um, we need to be thinking about it from that framework and whether or not it's superior within that category. And that's kind of why I define it.
0: I think though. that this episode right here is really gonna orange pill and educate a lot of people. And I really enjoyed this Bitcoin conversation. So before we leave, can you give the audience your social media handles? or any future endeavors that you might be working on that you want people to know about?
1: Yeah. Just follow me on Twitter. It's the best place. That's pretty much all I'm really active on. Um, I have have a website. You can find the link through Twitter. My Twitter handle is my name, E-R-I-C-Y-A-K-E-S. And yeah, if you check out my website, I, you can buy my book on Amazon. There's links to it on my website and yeah, that's pretty much it. Just reach out if you got questions or whatever.
0: Again, Eric, thank you for taking time to be on the Bitcoin source. Have a good one.
1: You too, man. (laughs) I don't know. I do